This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org ccnyc. Thanks for listening. <clears throat> Thus I have heard. On one occasion, the Buddha was living at Bodhgaya at Vayanasi, together with a thousand bhikshus and others. There he addressed the assembly. Bhikshus, practitioners. All is burning. And what is the all that is burning? The eye is burning. Forms are burning. Eye consciousness is burning. Eye contact is burning. Also, whatever is felt as pleasant or painful, neither pleasant nor, nor painful, that arises with eye contact for its indispensable condition, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of lust, with the fire of hate, with the fire of delusion. I say it is burning with birth, aging, and death, with sorrows, with lamentations, with pains, with griefs, with despairs. The ear is burning. Sounds are burning. The nose is burning. Odors are burning. The tongue is burning. Flavors are burning. The body is burning. Tangibles are burning. The mind is burning. Ideas are burning. Mind consciousness is burning. Mind contact is burning. Also, whatever is felt as pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, that arises with mind contact for its indispensable condition, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fires of lust, with the fire of hate, with the fire of delusion. I say it is burning with birth, aging, and death. With sorrows, with lamentations, with pains, with griefs, with despairs. Practitioners, when a noble follower has heard the truth, they see thus. They find estrangement in the eye, find estrangement in forms, find estrangement in eye consciousness, find estrangement in eye contact, and whatever is felt as pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, that arises with eye contact for its indispensable condition, in that too they find estrangement. They find estrangement in the ear, in sounds. They find estrangement in the nose, in odors. They find estrangement in the tongue, in flavors. They find estrangement in the body, in tangibles. They find estrangement in the mind, find estrangement in ideas, find estrangement in mind consciousness, find estrangement in mind contact, and whatever is felt, and whatever is felt as pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant that arises with mind contact for its indispensable condition, in that too they find estrangement. When they find estrangement, passion fades out. With the fading of passion, they are liberated. When liberated, there is knowledge that they are liberated. They understand. Birth is exhausted. The holy life has been lived out. What can be done is done. 
and there is no more beyond. This is what the blessed one said. The practitioners were glad and they approved his words. And now a uh, slightly more modern presentation of the same truth. I was walking in New York City and I brushed up against a man in front of me. I felt a cardboard placard on his back. And when we passed the street light, I could read it. It said, please don't pass me by. I am blind, but you can see I've been blinded totally. Please don't pass me by. I was walking along 7th Avenue. When I came to 14th Street, I saw in the corner curious mutilations of the human form. It was a, a school for handicapped people, and there were cripples and people in wheelchairs and crutches, and it was snowing. And I got this sense that the whole city was singing this. Oh, please don't pass me by. Walking, I thought it was them who were singing it. I thought it was they who were singing it. I thought it was the other who was singing it. I thought it was someone else, but as I moved along, I knew it was me and that I was singing it myself. It went, please don't pass me by. sitting there deep in your velvet seats and you're thinking uh, he's up there saying something that he thinks about but I'll never have to sing that song but I promise your friends that you're going to be singing this song may not be tonight may not be tomorrow but one day you'll be on your knees and I want you to know the words the time comes, cause you're gonna have to sing it to yourself, or to another, or to your brother, you're gonna have to learn how to sing this song, it goes, please, don't pass me by, oh, you don't have to sing this, not for you, please, don't Oh, 
I sing this for the Jews and the gypsies and the smoke that they made. And I sing this for the children of England, their faces so grave. And I sing this for a savior with no one to save. Hey, won't you be naked for me? Hey, won't you be naked for me? It goes, please don't pass me by. Oh, please don't pass me by. For I am blind, oh, but you can see. Yes, I. Nothing that I tell you that will help you connect the blood-tortured night with the day that comes next. But I wanted to hurt you. I wanted to end. Oh, won't you be naked for me? Oh, now please don't pass me by. Oh, please don't pass. I sing this song for you, Venuses, upon your shells on the foam of the sea. And I sing this for the freaks and the cripples and the hunchback and the burn and the burning and the maimed and the broken and the torn and all of those that you talk about at the coffee table, at the meeting. At the demonstration on the streets, in your music, in my song, I mean the real ones that are burning. I mean the real ones that are burning. I say, please don't pass me by. Oh, now please don't pass me by. For Get down on your knees. 
You're gonna get down on your knees. You're gonna get down on your knees. You're gonna get down on your knees. You're gonna get down on your knees. You're gonna get down on your knees. You're gonna get down. Oh, please don't pass me by. Oh, please don't pass me by. For I am blind, yeah, but you, you can see. Yes, I.
Well, I hope I see you there on the corner. Yeah, I hope as I go by that I hear you whispering in the field. Because I'm gonna leave you now. I'm gonna find me someone new. Find someone new. And please, don't pass. So we're taking up tonight the first noble truth, just the first noble truth. Uh, we'll take up the second and third. People, can you hear me? Uh, in other uh, academic studies, um, the fourth, we're taking up this Saturday, the fourth is the Eightfold Noble Path. So that's the topic of Saturday's workshop. There aren't that many people signed up for it. That is the way it is. It's not a problem. Um, the third, I believe, will be the subject of a Sunday talk. And the second is scheduled in October sometime. Parallel, parallel with that is an extended investigation that Shugen Roshi is giving um, through Ango and into um, subsequent time periods of Ango. Um, I've got a fair bit of material, perhaps bottomless, That's um, but I wanted to pause here. So you heard the Buddha's words from the fire sermon. Uh, you heard Leonard Cohn's words, which is an offering from the fire sermon. He was a Zen Buddhist practitioner. And so it's no coincidence what you heard. Um, so, any thoughts, questions? Okay, I'll go from here. So, um, I basically pulled some pieces from various sources. Um, the first noble truth is the basis of all of practice. The four noble truths are the basis of all of practice. Everything rests on it. Um, I think a lot of it is taken for granted, and the thing that's most taken for granted is the first noble truth. Um, the Buddha's presentation was pretty exhaustive. If he left anything out, I can't find it. Um, if those of you who came in late, you can reference the fire sermon by the Buddha online. Um, it's, my guess is he probably never gave that sermon, uh, because that has the Yogacara influence in it, uh, but that's fine. Um, I mean, he did give a sermon called the Fire Sermon, so I wonder about that. I, d I don't know. Or maybe my understanding of Buddhist uh, history and philosophy is not up to par. I don't know. But it doesn't matter, because from my perspective, he's speaking the Dharma, the Dharma as it is. And um, let me do some readings from various sources, and then I'll make some comments and see where you are. Yes. Am I not? Did I lose my...
Good. Do I need to repeat anything? Okay. So the first two truths, this is from Thich Nhat Hanh, suffering and its origin are studies of our separate sense of self, the samsaric versions, you and me. And the reasons we are in samsara and have arrived at samsara conclusions about who we are. The Four Noble Truths were the Buddha's first teaching. And here I'm quoting uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi. And he's addressing... uh, First, I'll speak my words. If we don't spend time considering what dukkha is, then we won't seek liberation. And awakening. Instead, we'll use the Dharma only to make our samsara life a little bit better. And I think this is a key foundational statement. And, and at least in my teaching, I'm always in some way, obvious or less obvious, emphasizing this. So most people in this room have heard me say no fixing. Fixing is easy, comparatively, to fundamentally addressing suffering. Now, there's nothing wrong with fixing. But that's not what the Buddha's path is about. And inevitably, fixing is a part of the Buddha's path. But it's provisional to allow us to go further and deeper into dukkha and to addressing dukkha. Um, One commentator noted, who was trained in Japan that in all the many years they were in Japan, they couldn't think of a single time that they heard the word dukkha. That the people who were coming to practice were coming to realize themselves. And that's often in contrast to Western Buddhism. So here's Bhikkhu Bodhi. If we don't accept that deeper dimension, realization, rather than just making us feel better, and I, just is not fair, but making us feel better. We all want that. Then when dukkha gets adapted to the Western mentality, we, and this is a Westerner speaking, we wind up with what I would call a psychologicalization of the Buddha's teaching. That is, dukkha becomes explained almost entirely of psychological or emotional suffering, distress, dissatisfaction, worry, anxiety, fear, concern, and so on. When it is explained in that way, one sees the aim of practice as overcoming those states of psychological uneasiness in order to live peacefully and happily in this present life. I'm just going to pause and let that settle in. I mean, who doesn't want to live peacefully in this present life, right? And we have a number of therapists in this audience, and so I'm saying that with awareness. That seems to be the drift of what I would call the secularized mindfulness movement that Dukkha... That that has grown out from Buddhism. It presents a partial explanation of Dukkha according to the Buddha's teaching. If we take that to be a fully adequate explanation, then we're impoverishing the teaching and turning it into a kind of therapeutic discipline rather than a liberative one. There's some questions that could come up easily there, but I'll go on. 
for me, the most challenging form of dukkha is generational dukkha. So dukkha, by the way, is translated usually as suffering. Uh, and I say this all the time. A better translation is a wheel that turns but is off kilter. So yes, it turns, but it bumps, it bumps, it bumps. And that, I think, is a good description of our life. Yes, our life goes on, but it's bumping. So for me, the most challenging form of dukkha is generational dukkha, the suffering that gets passed on from generation to generation, violence, abuse, or unskillful acts, racism, genderism, sexuality, prejudices, and on and on and on. It is pervasive. Our practice is very much an embodied practice. I can't think of a single Buddhist tradition in which that's not true. You understand what he just said? Embodied, your body. The arising of the Bodhisattva vow comes from the fact that even a cursory examination of your own body and mind and the world around you leads leads you to see that beings are suffering, that they are dissatisfied with their state. They're suffering as a result of being lost in bodies. They're suffering as a result of being in a world in which compassion doesn't show up for them in a very real way. I don't think there's a question about whether dukkha is mental or physical. Certainly in Zen, we understand these two to be completely intertwined. The Bodhisattva says, yes, of course, suffering in my own body and mind is a tiny grain of sand in the entire universe of suffering bodies and minds. So my concern is that it's very easy in practice for us to stop to look deeply at what dukkha really is, where it is, how it is. People want light and love and bliss. Many people come to Buddhism to achieve a better psychological state and feel better about themselves. And that's fine. And it is fine. We can help them in that at that level. But that's not the depth to which the Buddha's teachings go. If we don't spend time considering what dukkha is, then we won't see liberation, seek liberation and awakening. Instead, we'll use the Dharma only to make our samsaric life a little bit better within the context of samsara. I'm using my words here. And therefore, we lose the liberating aspect of the Dharma. So I want to read a quote by Norman Fisher, a contemporary Zen teacher. I've read it many times. It never gets old for me. I have to restrain myself from reading it every time I give a talk. Um, and if you've heard my talks, it's rare, maybe never, that I don't refer in some way to dukkha, to suffering. And the reason is, I can't say it better than the Buddha or Leonard Cohn or these words or the times I've said it, it's all pervasive. It's never, ever going to go away. Enlightenment doesn't make it go away. Realization doesn't make it go away. Now, it certainly affects your understanding and your experience of it. And we can explore why, on one hand, it does not go away, and on the other hand, how we can be free of it. But that that part we're not investigating today. 
So from Norman Fisher, Roshi, dukkha refers to the psychological experience, sometimes conscious, sometimes not conscious, of the profound fact that everything is impermanent, ungraspable, and not really knowable. We could stop there. What did he leave out when he said everything? You know, he just destroyed our intellect. (laughs) On some level, we all understand this. All the things we have, we know we don't really have. All the things we see, we're not entirely seeing. This is the nature of things, yet we think the opposite. We think we can know and possess our lives, our loves, our identities, and even our possessions. Guess what? We can't. It's all going to go. The gap between the reality and the basic human approach to life is dukkha, and our experience of basic anxiety or frustration. Suffering comes from our experience of impermanence. It all goes. I think once a Tice I referred to a book I read of a high-end mover, uh, who moves people, usually at the corporate level. He's very successful. Um, He's a writer as well, so it's an interesting mix. And he notes, so he moves the very, very ultra-wealthy corporate bigwigs and all of that stuff. And he notes in his book, it's a fairly recent book, it's a fascinating book, of all the stuff, some of it worth millions of dollars, some of it worth a Kia. And no matter what, it all goes. He moves it. They die, he has to move it someplace else or get rid of it or do something. Or, um, and he's amazed by how possessive and how important this stuff is to people. But it ain't going with him to the grave. Um, okay. All right, so I'm going to stop here and see if I've created any havoc, I hope. He said, hopefully. It's on focus. It's on. Oh. Um, Please. Um, no, I just wanted to say um, what what you address in terms of um, suffering and and dukkha, right? Um, and how you say that people tend to use the practice to make themselves feel better. You know, something came to my mind. For example, like a vision. If someone's walking down the block, and let's say suffering could personify itself as an actual person, right, walking next to them, I think they would want to avoid it because if it was all-knowing and it could say something to you like, you know, tomorrow you're going to go blind in one eye, you know, in three weeks your wife's going to cheat on you, Um, in four days you're going to lose your job, you know, in five minutes you're going to get hit by a car. I mean, this is changing. This is These are changes that could occur. It could also tell you other things, too, like, you know, you're going to hit the lottery, you're going to get a new job, you're going to... But, you know, I think people become comfortable in what it is that they've been doing consistently that makes them feel well, that kinds of, kind, kind, kind of um, allows them to use the Dharma as what you were saying, something to continue feeling well and not go deeper into what suffering actually is. Because, you know, I understand, you know, somewhat that, you know, that everything is scary. Like, I mean, that's the essence of it is is a fear. And we try to avoid things we're afraid of, like the dog barking, 
you know, while you're walking down the street. Nobody just walks. They cross the street. So it's like a, a, a habit that, you know, you try to avoid pain, you know, to some degree. You know? Of course. Nobody wants pain. We all want to avoid suffering. And, um, you know, in a way, we all want to avoid looking at suffering because, after all, it hurts. You're going to die. You're going to get sick. Everybody you know is going to die. Everybody you know is going to get sick if they live long enough. Everything you have is going to go away. The Buddha put, put this first. Now, he didn't stop there. Keep that in mind. He did not. So that's the difficulty of just taking up the first noble truth is you can go away and say, life sucks. You know, um, but this is spiritual practice. Obviously, the first thing we have to deal with is as things are. So I was in a hospital yesterday uh, walking through some of the corridors uh, for various reasons. And uh, there it is. Uh, it was NYU. It's arguably the largest or among the largest hospitals in the United States. And every place I look, there are old, sick people, really old, really sick, you know, coming in from the outside, being in the hospital, being wheeled around. Um, that's you and I. That is you and I, as Leonard Cohn made the point. This is not about somebody else. And there's nothing wrong in every and any situation to support people and to um, offer cheer appropriately. But the Buddha, but we're after something else here. Uh, without disregarding that, which is situationally appropriate, we're after seeing things as they are. And to see things as they are, you have to start with how are things. And as, as I've read, um, and by the way, I, you know, I'm mixing up my words with other people's words, and I'm not going to stop and separate them out at this point. Um, it's all the same point. Um, the suffering is intrinsic to life. It's, it's not this life and this suffering. It's intrinsic. It's entwined with it. And um, the things we would ordinarily think of as not suffering are, from a Buddhist perspective, also suffering. So why is that? You know, we like what we like, and it feels great, and it's wonderful, and we should tell people, cheer up, and, you know, it's okay. Uh, you're not going to die probably for another 50 years, even though we don't know that. Um, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of seeing somebody, and that's the last time you ever see them, and then they're dead. Um, that's not an unusual experience. Um, did you want to answer that question? And then I forgot. <laughs> okay. So that's it. That's the answer <laughs> right there. <laughs> Aho? Um, I wanted to make a different uh, point. Um, I've listened to that song many times, and I didn't realize that Leonard said, don't be the person that you came with, okay? Don't be the person that you came with. And he also said, I'll give you my dignity. I'll give you my everything. You can have it all. 
And I just wanted to make those. There's a lot in there about not being the person you came with on many levels. That's all I wanted to say. Um, I've been thinking about the self and the existence or non-existence of the self. So I think that would be included in the first noble truth that the self, in fact, does not exist. Yeah, well, and that's answered, the second noble truth. Oh, okay. And and is it? Yes. Okay. It so is. Think about that. And then to the answer to your question, um, we can get what we want, but it won't last. So there's dukkha built into it. But what's the problem if it doesn't last? Of course, nothing lasts. So what? Well, you work your whole life to attain something, and then, you know, it's not... It isn't it. And that's it. And then it's gone. Yeah. Anybody else? Donna? Um, plus, like, kind of adding to that, um, so many times the people think that a particular thing is going to make them happy. Like, they're, they're chasing after that. So they think, like, oh, if I do this, it'll make me happy. If I have a different job, it'll make me happy. If I have a different partner, it'll make me happy or it'll ease my suffering somehow. And, you know, with the exception of certain circumstances, like getting out of an abusive relationship or, you know, if you're like homeless and you secure a a place to live, um, it doesn't like, you know, we, we think that something's going to make us happy. And, and most of the time it, it, it doesn't. So like that thing that we kind of hold in our mind, um, that we, that we attach to. Um, speak, speak with I here rather than we. Okay. <laughs> um, the thing that, you know, I, um, you know, might attach to and like have, you know, as a thought that like, you know, things will be better if this happens that, you know, that, that, that is suffering because it, it doesn't. So the reason I asked you to do that is because there are many people who disagree with that statement. Hmm. There are many people, and I've asked, um, I've known some fairly wealthy people in my time and still do, and I've asked them, are you happy? And they go, yeah, I've got everything I want. So what about those people? You want me to respond? Sure. Um. Well, a couple of things come to mind. One is, and I don't know if this is probably not an answer you're looking for, but re- research. I'm not looking for any answer. Okay. Research actually shows um, that beyond like having your needs met um, and maybe a little bit extra, that actually having more money doesn't actually make people happier. Um, and, um, you know, there's certainly like an ease of, a certain kind of ease of life that comes with having a lot more money mm-hmm. um, because, you know, there's certain stresses associated with being poor or working class that, that don't, you know, exist in that situation, but like a, a deeper kind of happiness. Like a lot of times people with more money and, and more stuff are, are way more anxious because like they can get really paranoid. And I've known, I've seen this happen to people really paranoid about something happening to their stuff or somebody breaking into their house or taking away what they've earned or whatever. And that creates its own kind of unhappiness. And, and sometimes people don't even recognize that, you know? So sometimes I think it, it like that kind of gnawing sense of like, I'm not safe. My stuff isn't safe. Like doesn't even register as unhappiness. Like it's just kind of how things are. 
So what she said is really important. Uh, greed, anger, and ignorance. And, th- and what we're speaking of here is ignorance. Ignorance of what is happiness, true happiness, and what is not. What is true satisfaction, what is not. And particularly of karma. So there's a karma to being very wealthy. I, you may have read what I've read about, and I'm not going to remember the name, but one of the heirs of the um, drug company that produced so much ox- Purdue. I'm sorry. Yeah, Sackler. Um, I've been in some of their museum rooms in Boston that are wonderful and I, in New York. And they were speaking of one of the main uh, people in the family. And they asked a friend of his, um, you know, is he aware or conscious of the devastation that has allowed him to earn these billions of dollars? And the response was, he doesn't give a fuck. Um, I mean, those weren't the exact words, but in essence they were. He has so much money that there's nothing that anybody can do. Uh, so he doesn't have to care at all. So that's an interesting karma. Good luck to that. Yes. I just think, too, with that reflection about somebody that feels that they don't have to care and perhaps they don't care at all, um, what that might mean for the people in their closer sphere and even about themselves, really to, to close in that sort of way. Yeah. Don't be the person you came with. <laughs> yes, please. Um, I think Can I ask everyone to speak up? Um, I'm a little hard of hearing. The microphone doesn't help me. It helps the recording. Um, I don't know if that's on, but that doesn't help me. And the fan doesn't help me. Um, I think the first time I heard the first, the first noble truth, I was 13. And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Life is miserable and it is all suffering. And I think in, in my explorations, what it... You know, it's, it's interesting you made the distinction between the psychological, like, appeasement and, like, true awakening. Um, and, I mean, like, it hasn't even occurred to me to have a completely direct experience. Like, it's terrifying to have a direct experience of suffering. The kind of suffering that... I responded to when I was 13, when I first heard that, and it just like woke me up to this practice. Like, I don't, since we're not going to talk about the difference between psychological and realization, maybe direct experience of suffering you could talk about a little bit more? Sure. So I'll do it in very uh, pragmatic terms. I spend a huge amount of my time just inviting people just to experience the breath. That's it. Just experience your breath. So what's the problem? Why do so many people, and universal at the beginning for most people, or perhaps all people, why can't they be intimate with their breath? That's, I'm asking a question. What's stopping people? It couldn't be simpler The instruction is so simple. 
What's the problem? The breath is not very entertaining at first. Oh. And it also doesn't pay the bills, except, of course, if you don't it's breathe, you die. It's very entertaining. At first, <laughs> yes. it doesn't seem so. And still. <laughs> I see people smiling. <laughs> and still. You know, if you are not conscious of the breath, you still breathe, and then you can get other stuff done at the same time. You have to decide that there's a value and only... You have to not decide. You have to make it. You have to make that overcome the practice of wanting to be doing other things. Anybody else? Are we, is this going well? Thank you. <laughs> a lot of suffering. <laughs> this is suffering for me. I, I gave you the shot, man. <laughs> well, I don't think we could trust it. Just the breath. Thank you for that. So, you know, you can say, you can reflect on that, you know, that the practice is a practice of learning to trust the breath. And to put that in another term, you know, you put yourself there. You're doing the zazen. The zazen is the heart of this. No zazen, no practice. I mean, I don't care how much reading or philosophical you do. If you ain't doing zazen, nothing's happening other than your, your gears are spinning. Um, so what are we talking about when we say trusting the breath? Well, regarding the breath or beginning to follow your breath takes you into another part of yourself that you're usually not, I mean, you're breathing, you know, you don't have to, it does it on its own, mm-hmm. um, but being conscious of it goes to another level of what's happening with, what's happening in your mind, what's happening in your body. And that's, that's usually unknown unless you really start to pay attention to it and focus on it. It's always unknown. Yeah. Yeah. And I know you started to say, you know, in response to what are you trusting? Well, for, for me in my practice, um, what I'm trusting is what the Buddha taught, what I hear Roshi say, what I hear you say, and that I have to believe it is to trust myself, regardless of what that may sound like, what that may look like, or how I feel about it. Very well said. Thank you. And so for all of us starting in practice, we don't have any experience of what that means. We don't know what that means. Um, And so, you know, what brings us to practice is really important. Uh, For me, it was suffering. Um, And I think for many people, in some way, it's some variation of that. Um, I read a piece where someone trained in Japan noted for them, in their experience in Japan, uh, people came directly for, to awaken. I don't see much difference between the two. Uh, you awaken to address suffering. I may be off, it may be a cultural difference, and maybe who knows. I actually don't care why people come to practice, although it is really important for them to know at some point. A lot of times people come and they don't know, and that's fine, that they're being drawn. There's an energy of it. 
there's something working that they may not at that point have access to, uh, to express or to intellectually understand. Uh, if, it's interesting in the mountains and rivers order to become a student, those with the gray robes, you have to appear before the Guardian Council. And the Guardian Council is a group of senior practitioners, all of them been before that council, who practice many years and have a depth of understanding, or they wouldn't be there. And this is an open book test. The question is, why do you practice? And there's really only one answer. Um, and they're not looking for that answer. They're looking for you understanding the process of investigating that answer, which which is, can you go within yourself to the place you do not know, to the bottom of that, and say something, which doesn't have to be verbal, something ha- but something has to be expressed. And when, it, when you reach that place, you know it. You, there's nothing more for you to say. Now, it isn't the same with every person coming before the Guardian Council. There are other factors as well. Um, but I'm pointing at something that's really crucial for this order, for the Mountains and Rivers order. We don't take everyone who comes in the door. Everyone who comes in the door is welcome to practice with us, but we don't take as a student everyone who asks to be a student, uh, although we encourage and support and give direction, but you have to want to wake up. However you understand that, it doesn't have to be in the way I'm expressing it or even the way I understand that. But you have to want, you know, sometimes I say be a full human being, Sometimes I say to address suffering. I'm, I'm always scrambling to express something that touches our heart that we can't directly know and yet pulls us, demands of us as we continue to practice and go deeper that we realize something that is beyond our little sense of ourself and certainly a little sense of our suffering and includes everybody. Nobody is left out. And so this is the demand of the Beyond Fear of Differences group, group uh, work that we're doing, and the racism work, and the other isms work, because nobody can be left out. And that's especially true in a sangha that's essentially middle-class white. That nobody... So how, how does that work? It's very, very challenging to change the culture of an organization and to open up and, and make welcome... Everybody who comes in the door. So there's many subtleties here, and I'm not going to go on about that, but I just want to point to the fact that these are crucial issues in this time, in this place. You heard Leonard Cohn sing. That song was written in the late 60s, I suspect. I think I heard it in maybe around 1970 or 71, um, just before I began to formally practice Zen. And it was one of the things that went, I went, holy shit, do I hear what he's saying? Do I really hear what he's saying? And as Zeho said, I played it over and over and over again because it grabbed me by the nose and just, you know, something's being communicated in that. Maybe not everyone can relate to that, but something's being communicated in that that I'm not quite getting, Um, but I'm hearing the words. And that became the focus of my life. Uh, however, the specifics of my life went. It became literally the focus of my life. Just a couple of hands up. 
So I, I heard the word trust, so I want to say something about that. I, um, I often hear teachers, Zen teachers, uh, talking about this practice as transformative. I hear the word very often, transformative. Um, What's the word you're using? Transformative. Oh, yes. And um, I also talked to somebody who has been practicing for many years and has been working with uh, terminally ill people. And I asked him, do you feel like transformed? And he told me, let me tell you something. Nothing really changed. I haven't changed. I'm the same. This practice doesn't transform anything. So I was like, okay. Then every time I hear that word, I'm like, okay, you know what? I don't trust who says it. I don't trust the person who, t- who told me that the practice didn't transform anything. So I cannot do my own thing. And what's my own thing? I don't know. I don't really know. So you don't know? No. How's that feel? I don't know. Yeah. I'm sorry. So let me be clear. The practice is transformative. So my question is, what transforms? Don't shake your head. I'm asking you a question. Your delusions. Your delusions transform. So notice what work that person is doing. What were they doing? Who? The person you said it's not transformative, nothing transforms. What were they doing? I don't know what they were doing. Did you say they were working hospice? Yeah, they were working with... uh, uh, people with cancer. Mm-hmm. Were they professional? Were they a nurse or a doctor? Or? No, they were just yeah. Zen practitioners. Yeah. Did you ask them, were they doing that when they started practice? No, I didn't ask anything. Isn't that an interesting question to ask? Yeah, well. So I'll tell you my own, well, from a dharmic perspective, there's nothing to transform. There's nothing that could be transformed. Why not? I guess there's nothing there to transform. I'm sorry. There is nothing to transform. Do you believe that? No. Not yet. Yes. So in the beginning of practice, you're asked to take these things on faith and explore for yourself. And you're going to have to take some risks. And you're going to have to understand that each person is going to answer their questions from their own understanding, however limited or not, when you ask somebody. Now... If you ask me that question, I say nothing transforms. That's true. If I say this transformation that's full and real, that's true. How can that be? Well, it all has to do with your reference point. It all has to do with where and how you understand the you that's transforming and what transformation is. Do you have any inkling of what I'm talking about? A little bit, but, I mean, 
I feel different than when I started practicing, but I'm not sure that's really what I'm looking for. Well, I'm going to suggest you let go of what you're looking for and just totally put yourself into practice. As I said, everybody who practices, and this will never not be no matter where they are or how clear they are, how deluded they are, has to take risks at the edge of their practice. It's never finished. And in fact, when someone thinks they're finished, which sometimes happens, this shit hits the fan. I give you many, I won't do it in public, but I can give you many examples of that, which I've personally seen and studied and been lucky enough to receive the wisdom of seeing what happens when people with some insight stop practicing. It's not a pretty picture. Um, any more than it's a pretty picture when anyone stops practicing. Suffering ensues, big time, when you think you've got it. But in the beginning, you're going to have to carefully weigh, and this is your job and your responsibility, what you're willing to do, what you're willing to trust, how much you're willing to let go of yourself and your zazen. Um, When you see things that don't make sense, whether you're willing to question them and explore them and then perhaps let them be if you don't come to a satisfactory answer, because I can assure you a year later or five years later, something will pop and you'll go, oh, it's so clear now. I didn't understand this for a year, five years, 20 years. This, this is continually happening in practice, continuing, continually. And if you think not, read something dharmic now and then read it again in six months or a year, and your understanding is going to be completely different of it. And then read it again in some period, time period. You go, oh. So my saying for that is yesterday's enlightenment is today's delusion. That's another way of saying practice continues endlessly and that we tend to attach to wherever we are. We tend to think that's it. That's the holy grail. That's the answer. It's not. This first noble truth tells you that suffering will be entwined with your very existence. To be human is to suffer. That's it. Now, how can you see through that suffering? How can you see through yourself? How, what are you awakening to? What is awakening? Awakening is to see what the self is, to see what suffering is, to, to, to see for yourself directly out of your own, I have a nose, I know I have a nose, it doesn't matter what anyone else says, I don't have to trust that I have a nose. Ow! That's the personal experience of realization. Daito Roshi used to say, if it turned out that historically people proved that the Buddha never existed never had enlightenment, it wouldn't matter at all to him. And I feel exactly the same way. Exactly the same way. It doesn't matter. I'm not dependent on the Buddha. I'm not dependent on what the, you know, historians said, or what the, originally the Jesuits said, who discovered Buddhism, so to speak, for the Christian community, and had no understanding of what was going on, and so interpreted it through their own reference system. Well, guess what? Everybody who starts and continues along the way is interpreting you through their own reference system. That's called delusion. And yet, you have to respect your reference system. That's who you are. You have to work from where you are. Is this, am I reaching you? Because the questions you're ask, raising are really important, really crucial. You can't go deeper without taking risk here. You're not going to know. You're not going to know before you know. And when you know, you're going to realize you don't know. So good luck with that. There are a number of other 
people with comments and questions. You know, in a way, I feel like my question is piggybacking on the idea of transforming, except I was thinking about it as self-improvement. You know, I've been working with this lately because uh, there's an inmate who was writing to me, and and um, initially he was writing, I haven't been writing to him that long, but he was writing a lot about nihilism, and he's seen through his nihilism. And, but, you know, and, and I wrote to him a couple of months ago, you know, practice is not about self-improvement because what I'm hearing is that like, I'm a new improved incarcerated guy. And so I wrote, so I wrote that and then he, and he was like asking about that. I got a letter from him a couple of days ago and he's asking about like, I'm trying to wrap my, my mind around that. Right. And it's like, I'm trying to wrap my mind around it too. And, you know, it, so you know, part of what I understand is it's not about self-improvement is like transforming my experience is not about getting away from my experience. So like I was hot and sweaty and I took off my robe, you know, because I don't have to wear my robe. There's nothing inherently good about wearing, you know, and blah, 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 blah. Um, but you know how to express that, you know, and, but it's also like, it's also like, oh, I don't, I don't really quite get it myself, yeah. but how do I, I get something, but how do I express that yeah. in a letter? Somebody who's incarcerated. It's, it's very difficult. And, you know, the Buddha taught... Uh, uh, good night, focus. Um, via skillful means. So what does that mean here? Well, I guess it means that to do my best to share something of my experience that can be positive for this guy, that he can somehow take this and be encouraged in his practice. Yes, I would say teach out of where he is and what his need is. So this is, you know, face-to-face teaching. This is what happens. So my job as a teacher is to ascertain where is this student coming from? What are they asking when they ask a question? It's not necessarily in the words. What, what are they, where are they coming from? What are they looking for? What will help them? What will not help them? And so in that situation that you're describing, it may be that the best thing to do is to help that person from exactly where they are. And yes, sitting will relax you and decrease your anxiety and what, you know, whatever is appropriate in that. And the Buddha did this as well. Um, always taught appropriate to the circumstances and to the people before him. And we do the same thing. So the talks I give typically, I've said this many times on a Sunday, are very different than the talks I give in Sushant. You know, so this is me speaking, so bear with me. This is not great Dharma. It's probably not good Dharma at all. But on Sunday, I have an obligation to, to literally entertain people, to keep them interested in the Dharma. And I've got anywhere from five to 20 new people, first time they're walking in. And I give, if I give hard Dharma, you know, it's going to bounce off them. They don't have the equipment to understand what the hell he's talking about. Now, for some people, that's okay because they can hear beneath the words or they're ready, everybody's in a different place. But it's not fair, and I understand that. So I often use poetry um, or means just like I did with Leonard Cohn here um, to, to be able to open up its, so you know where I'm going with this. And that's our job when we offer the Dharma is to a time, place, position, and degree. So when I say not fixing, 
I'm speaking from the most fundamental level that this practice is about fundamentally waking up or fundamentally addressing suffering. And that transformation of our limited perspective of ourself is what happens. That's what awakening is. It doesn't exclude our limited perspective of ourself. And, and so from the perspective of the practitioner, you know, from my perspective, I have a huge responsibility in teaching, but I'm the same old, and people get upset when I use this word, A-S-S-W-H-O-L-E, from my perspective, <laughs> you know, I'm the same person that I've been for the past 30 or 40 years, even though at another level, I know that's not true because I see the things I do and don't do are very, very different. But I'm still me, you know. I still love the Denver Broncos, you know. And I still go crazy when I'm here on a Monday night and I can't watch the game, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. I still have my foibles. I'm still a human being. Um, but am I different than I was 20 or 30 years ago? You know, I can't say much. I can't say much. But if you want to know if a person's different, ask their closest person. That's one way. Um, and I'm not soliciting for you to get up and to say anything. <laughs> and who knows what you might say. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's got to be reflected in your life. And, um, and you could use another word that rhymes with life. Um, <laughs> if I'm not being, never mind. Um, so, you know, you want to pin something down as the transformation or not transformation? Depends from how you're looking at it. You know, from my perspective, there's nothing to transform. That's my understanding now. You'd ask me that question 20 years ago, I'd say, what are you talking about? You know, I want to transform my life. I think for me, it's just about, you know, what I try to practice with that is that, you know, I, I understand that on some level, mm -hmm. not a complete, I have, you know, like to the bottom of that and, uh, and somehow just to be okay with what I'm experiencing. And so what? Just to be okay with what I'm experiencing. Yeah. Well, if you want to understand it to the bottom, you have to go to the bottom. And you know that. Now's as good a time as any. It wasn't, it wasn't really that important. Um, but it just, talking about transforming and, and be nothing, there being nothing to transform, it, it made me think of the relative and, and the absolute because in, in one sense, there's nothing to transform, but in another sense, like, I, f I feel that process mm -hmm. and, and we've talked about that process and I've observed that process in other people, um, in the Sangha, um, that just certain things about them do change and certain aspects, you know, certain qualities become more prevalent, you know, um, people, again, I'm just observing people become in some sense, kind of softer around the edges, less rigid, um, typically. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I guess that's all I wanted to say about that. Well, I'm in a very privileged position because um, I've been around Zen Mountain Monastery long enough, uh, since 89 or so when I first went there, or visited at least, 
So I remember Shugen Roshi, who I considered, you know, he's my teacher, and he transmitted the Dharma to me. And I've said this publicly before. You know, when I first met him, I thought, who is this guy? He is so uptight. You know, take the stick out of your, you know, it's like he was the, the epitome of a Dharma policeman. Well, that's where he was at the time. I don't want to get anywhere near him. Um, and, you know, now, so this is from my perspective, he's the kindest, most generous, most realized person I've, I know. And, you know, and the fact that he's my te- I can't say anything more than I've chosen him. I chose him to be my teacher. That was not random or accidental or if, believe me, if, if I thought there was someone else who could have helped me more, I would have gone there because my whole life is dedicated to waking up and to living out of that. And I haven't found that person. I'm not saying there isn't others who are realized or, but for me, that was the fit uh, in that particular time and place. Um, and so I've seen that across the board, as you've said, with all the people I know, and there's a lot of them who've been practicing 10, 20 or 30 years that I've been practicing with. And I see that transformation. I, I knew them when they were 20 and I know them when they're 40 or 45. And it's not just a matter of maturity and getting old. There's wisdom there. There's compassion there. And there's a price to be paid for that. And nobody gets away. Nobody gets out of this practice alive. And I don't mean they're going to die in the physical sense. But dying to the self, you can't wake up without that. Truly wake up. Uh, You can have little kenchos, little insights. But for your life to literally transform... You, you, you've got to go deep within yourself. And it's just not free. It's hard. You're going to face yourself and you're going to face, you know, this Sunday we have a Fusatsu ceremony, a ceremony of repentance, among other things. You're going to face your karma, just like the Buddha did. Just like every other being that has woken up did. So how do we know whether we are uh, actually practicing the right way and not just following a path of self-improvement? Let's say if we don't have a teacher, um, couldn't we just be deluded? And uh, if I might think I'm uh, looking deep inside myself and try to address the nature or understand the nature of suffering but i might not really do that so uh, how how do i know who, or who well that's that is the question isn't it you don't how how would you know i mean the, the buddha put the emphasis on the three treasures as an answer to that question buddha dharma and sangha so the 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 buddha is the realized one represented by the teachers. That's the mind-to-mind transmission since the time of the Buddha. The Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha, and the Sangha is us. So that the person who practices by themselves, people who practice by themselves have awoken. It's not common. It's very rare. But that they have had awakenings. But they tend, not universally, but almost universally, to be odd ducks to be 
um, not held by Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So you have a tradition that's 2,500 years. All the mistakes that are possible to be made have probably been made. I mean, it's interesting to be in the monastery and see how the schedule goes and how people come in for residency and what happens when things go off the rails there or here, and that does happen. And to rely on the Buddha's teaching. So we just had somebody who had to leave the monastery after being there many years. Why? The single reason the Buddha asked people to leave the Sangha was because they created disharmony in the Sangha. Other people couldn't practice. It's fine if you're different or don't fit in or even mentally ill or whatever. But if you're creating circumstances that other people can't wake up, then you, you can't be there with other people. And so you're asked to leave. So we know that. So we have a very clear guideline on how to navigate that while exhaustingly trying to hold someone in that situation. It's the same. So for people who practice by themselves without a Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha available to them in a direct way, that's your call. That's up to you. That is, I, I, I don't mean to say that's what I want, but still, with I mean, I, yeah. I've been practicing in the Sangha for a while, but still I'm, I feel kind of lost uh, <laughs> yeah. as to uh, understanding w what I'm doing, actually, and whether I, I'm doing it right. Yeah, that's the position you're in. You're, you know, you, you practice with the Sangha, but not of the Sangha, in effect. I'm, I'm being kind of black and white, and it's not fair, and I understand that. And there are many more people like you than there are people who are students, formal students. And that is yours. Everybody is welcome. It's not our job, or especially my job, to tell people. We don't solicit people. Uh, but the answer to your question is it's very, very difficult to be in the position you're in from a spiritual practice position. To me, it's murderous, meaning I'm so uncomfortable. Um, I mean, the times that I've suffered the most in my practice life is when I've been separated from Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Either I created that or the physical circumstances were such in my life that I couldn't be connected. Um, and so... Um, That's why the Buddha said, you know, taught that way. Um, I don't believe you can do this by yourself, at least from a statistical point of view. It's not my experience that the, the, our, our sense of self is too smart, too clever, too accustomed. We've set it up that way. Uh, I'm sorry. Okay, well, tell me what you meant. Let's work it. Okay. Speaking from the perspective that a teacher I want to ask to be my teacher is not there anymore. So now, but I still want to practice. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then practice. Do the best you can till the circumstances change. The circumstances will change. I promise you. And I think I know specifically what you may be talking about. I don't know for sure. But the circumstances will change. 
Okay. Well, I'm sorry if I... The Buddha is burning, the Dharma is burning, and the Sangha is burning. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's all got to go. And it's all completely helpful. So that's later in, in the Four Noble Truths. How do you wake up? Through suffering. Through being completely intimate with the suffering. Does that, can you relate to what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I, this is a cloud. Okay. Um, I think that there's a lot of suffering that comes from attaching to forms, and it's very helpful to realize that the forms are not permanent. It's not necessarily a sad thing that everything is burning. Um, it's liberating. Um, facing yourself is not always painful. Um, doing, practicing hard and pushing yourself isn't always. Um, about being tough and rigorous. Um, like this morning, <laughs> I uh, my alarm clock didn't go off. I totally thought that I pushed, you know, the little button that makes it go green and says you're going to wake up at five thirty, and I didn't. And I woke up at six thirty, and. I um, was trying to be here because I was supposed to sit as a Zendo attendant, and maybe Hokyu took my place. Um, and I just felt like total crap after. Like, so I got up and I was like, okay, um, well, I'm already late. I'm going to just go like at the second period. I'm going to slide in during Kinhin. So I have time for a coffee. So I had a coffee. And then I, I left the door, and then I looked up at the clock on the street, and I was like, oh, my God, it's almost 7.15. I'm not going to make it. And I walked to the door anyway, and then um, I realized it was closed and I couldn't get in. And I heard you guys chinging a little later and doing the service, that I, and I felt like apart from it. But I also found some pieces of Ikea furniture on the street and brought them home. The, the white chest. The white la laminate stuff. <laughs> I brought that stuff home, and this I met this guy on the street who he had this like shopping cart, and he he helped me carry this stuff home, and we had this great story about it. He he grew up in Jamaica, and like I gave him eight dollars, and anyway, I still feel like crap after I got home, but I was also happy about the desk. But anyway, it's like <laughs> I there's this 
there's this thing that bothers me about organized religion and about this place and about you, you know? <laughs> it's like I hate authority and I hate, um, you know, this ideal, even though, like, I'm totally guilty of, like, striving for an ideal <laughs> big time. And it's just so frustrating. Guilty as charged. Um, so I was going to ask, so it sounds like if everything is burning, so suffering is the burning, suffering is change, Suffering is change, the fact of change, perhaps. So I don't know, as I see it, everything is transforming constantly. There is no not transforming. And, and it is exactly that that is so um, frightening. Yeah. So the term for that is Buddha nature. That transformation that doesn't take place. There's nothing else other than change. It's one thing to know that intellectually. It's another thing to study it as ongoing practice. Notice I didn't say it's another thing to know that. How could you possibly know that? But, I mean, isn't and this is getting maybe away from the first noble truth, but the goal of awakening is to know... No. To know... No. In a... <laughs> but to know in a non-knowing way, and to know directly. <laughs> in other words, I mean, you can have right understanding, you could know the dogma, but then it's, it's recognizing it, I guess. Well, I'm not going to discuss not right understanding I, here. I'll, no I'll talk about it Saturday. Uh, so you have to, you know, show up for that. Otherwise, you'll never understand it for the rest of your life. <laughs> um, that brings up the kind of the brass tacks question of four noble truths. I mean, um, one thing that's repeated over and over again in the Buddhist teaching is... Um, I mean, constantly going back to the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, but specifically the teachings of impermanence and interdependence. And um, and so sometimes what seems to be emphasized is to constantly be contemplating these, these things. And obviously there are opportunities in our life to, uh, to, to bring awareness to a situation like that. But sometimes I think like, no, I need to be doing more. I need to be much more proactive about being aware of impermanence. However, my practice is not to be looking around the room saying, that's impermanent, and this cat is impermanent, and da 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 and this is interdependent. You know, it's like I have a different practice, and most of us are just trying to live our, our lives. And so um, my, my question is... Um, I mean, how do you think, uh, uh, what do you think is kind of realistic for a practitioner in order to, um, to, to be doing their utmost to bring awareness to these truths um, without it becoming kind of like a 
parody of practice or becoming not what, you know, other than practice. Yeah. Well, you just study your moment-to-moment life. That's all. There's nothing spectacular or um, even particularly defined. I mean, you can take it up as a practice, um, but, you know, if you're, if you're sitting and doing the appropriate eight gates of Zen, it's built in. You see it. You see it moment to moment. You don't have to think of it that way. It may not even be helpful to think of it that way. But what happens is as the sense of a separate self from that impermanence diminishes, which is inevitable with practice, then you yourself are that moment to moment impermanence. Your mind is that. I mean, what are we studying in Sazen? Impermanence. I mean, your mind isn't the same for two seconds in a row. And... Um, um, you know, everything's constantly changing. Right? So, um, you know, that's my approach. Uh, that as I've sunk deeper into practice, it just, you know, you just more and more become as it is. And, and as it is, is... No place that it is. It just is. There's nothing you can say about that. You know, the over and over, where we're leaning in a bit is, you know, even the Buddhas and ancestors can't express this when you get to a certain point. So, um, and even the Buddhas and ancestors don't have to express it. It's who they are. So let me read a, a section here. Dukkha is produced not by things themselves, meaning external events, or by their insubstantial nature, emptiness. Rather, our mind has been conditioned by ignorance into thinking that external happiness can be obtained through things that are ephemeral and transient. There is no easy way out. So when I say that Dukkha is both universal, quote, permanent, as long as you're alive, it's the way it is. You know, as you age, things don't work as well. I, I was reflecting, I think I said this to someone, sometimes I feel like an old truck, and as I'm driving down the highway, the parts are falling off. You know, it's just the normal part of getting old and um, things not working as well, and that's just the way it is uh, until there's no more parts left, and that's how it is. So here's a quote from Trumpa. In our living in the samsaric world, there was no relief or relaxation. It's a pretty absolute statement. There is always struggle occurring to give us some relief or safe space, but even that achievement creates more anxiety since we always know it will change and we're not truly safe from the arrows of existence. So as long as we're human beings, we're going to face suffering. How we face that and how we understand ourself and the suffering is the whole of practice. What is so fascinating here is that the Buddhist teaching does not tell us to stop or skip around our pain. So please hear that because that's our tendency all of the time. 
The teachings are here to see into and to understand our pain. The more we see into our pain, the more we understand our state of being, the more we will understand why we suffer. So see into means a particular thing of seeing into. It comes out of the mind of deep stillness, of quiet, of non-duality, the cultivation of non-duality, to see into our pain, our self. When we study our suffering, we find that the more we are lodged in our sense of a defined, separate sense of self, the more we suffer. The less we are lodged, the less we suffer. So that's getting to the second noble truth. Okay, well, I'm going to stop here. There's much more that I could go over, but I'm not sure it's helpful at this point. Any last thoughts, questions, prodding? Get something off your chest, anything? Yes. Microphone? Um, uh, Maria Rilke poem. Um, a poem. And in it, the author, I often think about impermanence. This is probably reflective of my own solidified sense of self, but I often imagine impermanence as like other things being impermanent. And in this um, poem, she describes us, the reader, as like walking through town with all these buildings and like we are the, we are the steam we are the thing that is impermanent and drifting off. And, and that was just in my mind. So I thought I'd share that as my own reflection on, usually I think it's something else, but really in the context of the world, it's, it's us that is going. Yeah. Or all at once, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, from a Buddhist perspective, the question when you say it's us, what is that us? What's excluded from that? That's what we're investigating. Thanks for listening. You can find more Dharma Talks, interviews, and events at zmm.org media. While online, please check out the Jizo Project, our multifaceted initiative to make Zen Mountain Monastery more accessible and welcoming to all. Learn about the new Jizo House building and accessibility enhancements to existing facilities that are just two aspects to this exciting endeavor. Find out more and see how you can get involved at zmm.org slash Project. That's J-I-Z-O-P-R-O-J-E-C-T.